a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. O is for Obi-Wan Kenobi. All rebel fighters met at fleet headquarters to plan their attack. Princess Leia addressed them. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Hello, I am C-3PO, and you are about to listen to the story of Star Wars. Another chapter is here. Welcome to Don't Burn the Sacred Text. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I'm here with my co-host. She is as wise as P3 and as bad to the shield as Salandra. It's Lindsay. Nice. I like it. It's a very complicated, uh, real deep intro. A lot going, a lot going on, yeah. There is. There is. <laughs> Like the thing we're going to talk about today, which is, of course, the Battle of Jedi, as you could probably tell from the title of this uh, podcast. So uh, on this episode, we will be talking in full spoilers about the Battle of Jedi, which is the fourth audio drama that we have in the Star Wars canon and the second one in the High Republic. So with that in mind, Lindsay, I want to start by asking you before we get into like the Battle of Jedi itself, how do you feel overall about this audio drama format that's been implemented in Star Wars? So, this one in particular, I like. Uh, I feel like it's a loaded question, and it's it's really hard to answer right now, because figure this is the third audio drama that we've had. Um, we had Jedi Lost, and, oh goodness gracious, what was the phase one? The Tempest um, Runner. Tempest Runner, yeah. And you also um, had, after uh, Dooku, you had the Dr. Aphra. Uh, which is a reinterpretation that's right, of the comics. That's right. So even even better, making it more complicated. Um, this is the fourth one. I would say we are now at 50-50. I think when it's done well, and I don't want to give too much away with my thoughts on the Battle of Jedha, uh, but between this and Jedi Lost, when it's done well, it's done so well. When it's done poorly... And in my opinion, Afro was and eh, Temporano was eh. um, it can really be a setback. So it's it's tough to say. And I was actually kind of dreading over the past couple of days when when I knew that you were going to ask me what my rating um, for Battle of Jedha would be, because it's really hard to differentiate between the story and the medium. And I think that all in all, this is a good medium, and it has a lot of potential to be a great medium um you know we're we're podcasters i obviously listen to a lot of podcasts my thought with this one in particular though was just this would have been a great podcast series marvel does it really well with some wolverine stuff where they have audio dramas as just one hour weekly podcast episodes the same way it would have been back in radio back in the day and I think this would have been the perfect introduction of a serial podcast format for Star Wars. Uh, but overall, to answer your question of how do I feel about this medium and, and this way of storytelling, it's just like everything else. It just has to be done right. And I think we really are only 50-50 right now. Yeah, I would agree on the 50-50. Um the challenging part with it is there are so many factors that go into it, more so even than a book, because a book, I think, 
you know, you've got the words on the page, you've got how they're put together, uh, you've got the story that it's telling, the character development, like you have a lot of pieces, but the actual creation of a book is getting the words onto the page, right? The creation of this is finding the right voice actors, making sure their voices are distinct enough, getting the sound effects to be believable and syncing up and like all of this stuff that, I mean, this is kind of in between where you would be from a book to a TV show, you know, kind of in the middle there with how many pieces you have to have going at the same time. And this one was the first time that it felt like they weren't doing it just because, hey, we've done audio dramas, so now we need to continue doing audio dramas, but because there was a good story to tell um, in it. So that kind of leads into our ratings, which mine is a four out of five. Because I think, like I said before, they did a better job of differentiating the voices between the characters, which was, for me, a huge downfall for Tempest Runner. I also think that it was as effective as Dooku uh, Jedi Lost in how it built the story and the lore around Star Wars. However, just the story of Dooku is better. Um, So this would be in my number two slot in terms of the, uh, not radio dramas, audio dramas that we have so far. So what about for you? Yeah, you know, I, I'll keep with the same kind of system. Um, I would say for me, this was a four out of five. And I feel a little bad because I think it actually deserves better because it's it's a great story. There's a lot of cool characters. There's really nice action, which we'll get into. But it's training myself to understand this way of storytelling. You know, books, look, we've gr- literally grown up reading books. Right, we had English class for how many decades to teach us how to evaluate if a book is good or bad. Anyone with, who grew up with like a pizza hut is used to writing book reports and criticizing books. Same with movies, you know, and especially my, my degree being in film, I'm so used to being able to watch something and, and critique it and say if it's good or bad. And so I'm curious if Battle of Jeddah really does deserve that five out of five, because again, the story is great. It's just, I'm not as used to understanding and critiquing this medium. Um, so there's that in terms of, who this is a tough one. In terms of where I would rank it among the other four, I think I agree with you that it's second best I just, I think it might be first best. I don't know. My thing with Jedi Lost is it gave us a lot of amazing insights into the deaths and the secrets of the the Jedi Temple and what the Jedi might have been hiding or concealing. And I, I said right when it first came out, and I still say whenever I talk about Jedi Lost, there's so much potential here for stories they could go into and and things that they could expand upon. And I thought High Republic would be the perfect way to do it. And so far, all of that is still kind of sitting on the shelf collecting dust. Uh, I, I don't know if it's that Jedi Lost was this great story or if it just teased so many potential great things that put it in my number one spot, which is why I would say Battle of Jedi has potential. Maybe it is the best best audio drama. Who knows? I should know since I'm the one being asked, but I don't. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> stepping on the heels of uh, Jedi Lost. Like, I could see an argument either way. I think 
Jedi Lost has the nostalgia points in that, you know, it kind of introduced us to this format and how successful it could be. And it's kind of the standard, you know, bear for what what audio dramas can be in Star Wars. Um, But again, like everything that it does well in terms of lore building and storytelling and getting you invested in the characters and things like that, it does really, really well. I think one small difference between them that kind of makes Dooku a little bit better is I think Dooku understood the format better because there's not, it's more of a character study than Battle of Jeddah. Battle of Jeddah feels more like you're listening to an audiobook versus an audio drama because there's so much action happening that you have to really visualize a lot of things going on at the same time, which is not something that is when you're, you know, trying to listen to the voices and identify who's who and all of these things, it becomes harder to really paint a picture of what of what's going on. And I think Dooku did a little bit of a better job than that. That's not to say that this didn't, it's just slightly better. Uh, but without Rogue One, without us going to Jeddah and see every, seeing everything on uh, on Jeddah in Rogue One, this story doesn't exist. But they saw, okay, here's a good story in Rogue One with some really cool points that were left kind of open-ended. You know, who are the Guardians of the Wills? Why is this Jedi statue fallen? Like, why was this a holy city but now it's abandoned kind of vibe? going on and they were like all right cool that's a great place with a lot of lore we're going to take that back to to its golden era and visit it there and you get another great story because of that this this one is especially a testament to the importance of good storytelling and not just it needs to continue putting out content storytelling because we got a great story in rogue one with so much potential and it led to such a great story here with so much potential that i'm sure there are tons of things in here that you can continue to build off of like we could go to the temple of the kyber we could explore more of the church of the force like there's so many things that we could do here and shoot now that i'm thinking about it even if you go all the way back to the force awakens (laughs) you have the church of the force like so yeah well, this it's it's interesting too that you mention all the little facets as well as how this plays in best in terms of ways of telling the story. Because to me, I would actually argue the point where Jedi Lost is really character building. I agree with that, but because of that, that's why I think maybe it would be better in a different medium. Not because this isn't a good way to tell a story. It's just not what we're used to. So it was harder for me when I listened to Jedi Lost for the first time to really sit there and and think about that character development because I was adjusting to this new way of telling a story. So that's why I think Battle of Jedi is almost a little bit better for this way of telling a story than Jedi Lost. So I agree Jedi Lost is more character-driven or I don't want to say character-driven, I guess more, more exploring a certain character. Um, but because of that, I prefer Battle of Jeddah being told in this format. I also, though, do really agree with how I love that, and this isn't specific just to Battle of Jeddah, but to High Republic overall, really highlighted in Battle of Jeddah, though, that it's taking on these different facets and, and locations and things and coming together i think what phase two of high republic is doing really well is using the avenger format for this phase 
where for um, the first Avengers, what Marvel did was they had one movie introducing each one of the heroes and then they all kind of came together. And I feel like that's what they're building to more and more in this phase of High Republic, which is great and really digestible and really cool. And there's even now little facets of it in Andor and in all these other entities. Um, But I think one thing that's really interesting, like you said, you can explore all these different temples and places you can go is this is really being highlighted more so in the comics, which are getting harder and harder and harder to keep up with because I feel like there's just so many for different timelines right now. But the comics are doing a really good job of introducing all these different sects and religion and, and areas and avenues of, of exploring the force. Um, and I can't really imagine having listened to Battle of Jeddah without being able to visually picture all of these different entities and organizations because of the comics. Yeah. And because of the time in Rogue One too, you know, like I'm not really into the comics, but I could visualize Jetta really easily because of the great work that they did in Rogue One. So you kind of talked earlier of um, how this could have been a serial podcast kind of format. And they kind of set it up like that in the six parts that you have, you have the prologue and then you have the six parts. So I thought kind of as we're exploring the story, we can kind of just go through each part and talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, all of that stuff. So it starts off with... Yeah, uh, subconsciously. (laughs) Now I feel like an idiot for saying it now too, because probably because of that breakdown is exactly why I subconsciously probably had that thought. Yeah, no, I mean, it totally makes sense. And each of the parts is, is distinct, but they all flow together very easily. So if you listen to it all in one sitting... It doesn't feel like, okay, this is where one episode stops and another one starts. It it flows. So I think in that way, it's not quite a podcast format where you have a a clear end to a story with a cliffhanger that leads you into the next one. But I think they were trying to define the different steps it took to get to where we get to in the end with the Battle of Jeddah itself. And on second listen, I think that even more so than my first listen, they did a good job of making those clear distinctions and clear points and setting them up uh, for what they were going to pay off later. That's true. So I'll give myself a little more credit. Yeah. Yeah. Give yourself a little more credit. Um, (laughs) Somebody who gets no credit is Tilson Graf because that guy just freaking sucks. Mm. Um, Because we start, we start the story. (laughs) I thought you were going to say the opposite, which is why I made that noise. I thought you were going to be like, yeah, he has no credit, but he deserves a lot. (laughs) no no uh let's just say he got everything that he deserves um (laughs) but we start actually right when the the riots are starting in the prologue and we have the civilians riding outside as tilson graf is proceeding over um the what third attempt at signing this treaty um before it finally fails so i thought that was interesting to set it up that way when in part one, you're learning about how things were initially supposed to be with uh, the Santeca presiding over it. Everything was supposed to be all smooth. And we know from the prologue, that's not 
how it's going to go. You know, if like the name Battle of Jeddah didn't give it to you enough, um, we've got a riot starting and we also have somebody else proceeding over over this treaty signing. And we know from phase one that the Santecas and the Grafts are uh, they're not good friends. They, they don't they don't go to dinner together. Let's just say that. Um, so really, I thought that was a compelling way to start the story. Like, it's very simple storytelling, like show the point of action and then show how you got there. But in this audio drama format, I think it was very effective to go like, all right, here are some key things we're going to be moving towards. So look for these key things as we're telling the story. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And I just think that in terms of pacing, it was almost needed because part one in particular, I'm, it, it wasn't bad by any means. Um, I, I struggled to say or go as far as to say it dragged because it didn't necessarily drag, but it wasn't the most exciting thing in the world, right? When you you pick up a book or download a, an audio book called The Battle of Jeddah, you expect that excitement. You expect a lot of fast-paced, energetic storytelling. And I think it would have done a great disservice to the greatness of the story uh, to start with these diplomats and all this talking and all this discussion and exposition. I think you kind of have to start with that more exciting piece of it so why not do it in the middle? You know, why bother creating this one event to kick things off that we're never really going to go back to? And you still need it as the catalyst. You just can't necessarily have that right away. You have to build to it. So I, I like the little sneak peek of what was going to happen just to create that tension going in. So I thought it was really well done. I agree. And one of the things that Tempest Runner did that really just threw me off was how much it jumped around different timelines. And mm -hmm. so when I first got this, I was like, okay, are they going to be jumping back and yeah. forth? Because I'm not a fan. And then it became very clear as we were going through part one that, no, we're setting up um, and building towards a, you know, the zero hour, which is what they call it in the prologue. And we start 72 hours. I like before. to that, that really, if you think about it, brought it back to the very kickoff of the high Republic. Mm, uh, Cause yeah, the yeah. first story, what is it? Light of the Jedi um, starts the same way, right? How many hours until impact until explosion, so to go back to something that we're familiar with, I think was a really smart idea as opposed to having that countdown be the first time it was introduced in this relatively new way of storytelling. Um, so that was just a nice callback to me and, and a good way to not take us totally off our guard. Yeah, and I think something else that they did in part one that was a good setup thing is how they weaved in the aspects of convergence that, uh, you know, kind of start this story off. You know, the, the convergence is kind of the prequel to the Battle of Jeddah. And you need to explain what happened in the convergence because, you know, every Star Wars is somebody's first. But you also don't want to talk down to your audience, the majority of who have read convergence like if you're listening to a star wars audio drama you probably read the star wars books that's why we're doing this on don't burn the sacred text so like 
you had to give a clear definition of what the situation was without spending a whole bunch of time explaining it where your audience is not going to want to continue to move forward. And I thought they balanced that really well. And I like that they took, you know, we kind of talked with Convergence about how it was a small contained story, and it still is. But we see how these small contained stories do, in fact, have a big galactic impact. Um, so I thought that was really good. I also thought they did a really good job in part one of world building with uh, the convocation of the force, the season of the light, festival of balance, like all of that is is really easily uh, understandable about what's going on in the world and the different religions all kind of around the force, but with different perspectives on it. And so you see for the path, how that would be enticing and for the mother in particular, how that could be a, an easy tool to make them, uh, them being the path of the open hand into the, uh, the victims of all of this. Oh, we, we, ne we're never going to be accepted by the convocation of the force because they fear that we're right and they're wrong and, uh, all of these things. So I thought, the setup of everything that we were going to get later took time, but it needed to take time because there was so much to build around. Yeah. And to the credit of the world building, I think it did a great job because if you think about a lot of what we know in star Wars and just fantasy and sci-fi storytelling as a whole is we always need something to relate it back to in the real world for us to say, oh, that's like this, and you can internalize it and understand it better. The Trade Federation in Phantom Menace, which as you know, and I hope our listeners know, I love the Phantom, I love the Phantom Menace. It's what got me into Star Wars in the first place. This is absolutely no way to not run on the prequels or Phantom Menace. But one of the more challenging things to still wrap your head around and explain to new Star Wars fans is... What is the Trade Federation? What are they like? Why do they have a seat in the Senate filled with planets? And there's just a lot of how do we relate this to our, our real world experience? And this, um, this kind of convention and this holiday and this treaty signing, there's not really a lot that comes to mind, at least in modern history, that you can relate this back to and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's like this. So to have that world building and have that understanding of here's what's going on and everyone be able to relate to it and understand it and get into the story of it is a real credit to George Mann. Yeah, he's I mean, he's showing himself to be one of, if not the best writer in Star Wars right now. Like, um, I know we, we praise Claudia Gray and Kevin Scott and all of them like as we should. But George Mann is putting himself in that conversation for sure. Um, actually, did you happen to see who the dedication of this book is for? Uh, I did not. I didn't, I didn't notice it until I got the physical copy, um, and the bound script, but it is, let me see if I can find it. It's dedicated to, yeah, for Kevin Scott. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which I thought was, was a great little simple shout out. Um, but yeah, I meant to mention that earlier when we were talking about the different rankings and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it's nice to just see Star Wars authors really giving each other love. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So in the, in the story, we get, you know, 
a lot of callbacks. We have the, the Church of the Force. We have the Guardians of the Wills. But one of my favorite things that they introduced that was new uh, was the bar, the Enlightenment. Um, I just thought, what a genius thing to name your bar on Jeddah is Enlightenment. And this is the one place where they everybody's welcome. That is something that you know, going to what you're talking about before about something in the real world that we can relate to, like that's something that we can relate to is these neutral zones where even when people hate each other, they're like, all right, when we're here, we're, we can still hate each other. We're just not yeah. going to express it. We, you know, like uh, it was a safe zone and rather than, you know, a no man's land, which is essentially what Jeddah is going to become later. And so I just loved the idea of enlightenment and how it was set up to be, okay, this is a safe space. We know when we're here, things are not going to go wrong. This is where we're kind of going to go to wrap our heads around everything that is going on. And so every time yeah. we go back and, and you know, that, that's I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy you brought that up too, because to be honest, when you had said um, specifically, you really understood what was going on and, and the surrounding area because of Rogue One, I was actually a little surprised because Rogue One was to the same point we've been seeing some other entities of is how did we get here? Like how did how do we go from this to that? Um, because my thought was actually in a lot of reading, you know, about the Enlightenment and even just the different marketplaces and what was going on at the Festival of Light, it actually felt closer to Batu to me than it did Jeddah of what we know in Rogue One. Hmm. I, I guess I can understand that. Having just reread Black Spire, I can understand that. But I think it links better to... Just in terms of it almost feeling like a bit more of a melting pot, a very reluctant melting pot. Because I, I think when you have that kind of setup and you have that kind of place, yeah, you have these people from these, what do we count, six different factions that all have these... Sometimes wildly differing views, sometimes pretty similar views. Um, so it's not as quite the everyone come together and, and share things and ideas and be a marketplace like Batu is, but there's still that collaboration um, that was very similar, whereas Jetta was, you said it perfectly, it becomes the no man's land. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that. I think the Jedi that we get in Rogue One is because of the Jedi that we get here. Uh, I think this is, you know, if you think about Solo, Solo does a really good job of, like, setting up, okay, now we know where all of these things from Han come from for later on, you know? Uh, I think this does that for the city of Jedi. It, it makes sense now why everything was beaten down and broken and why the guardians of the wills are sitting on the street corner rather than at a temple, you know, all of these, the lack of diversity in, um, rogue one, when it comes to that planet of how we, we see a bunch of people, but we can't really tell who's who and what faction they belong to versus what we have here, where it's really clearly stated and laid out and people recognize very easily the different factions that people belong to. Um, I think all of that happens because of what happens in this story here. So that has become the norm for Jedha because that's, you know, 200 years later or however much it is uh, in Rogue One. But it is really a de-evolution of the planet rather than um, 
what they were trying to do here and having all these different sects work together and live together and um, kind of try to come to a common ground, um, that all gets literally blown up in this story. Is <laughs> they, they, nobody trusts? Yeah, and, and I want to get to I want to get to the blowing up, but I will say it's becoming one of my favorite tropes in Star Wars is to see the overall evolution of societies and planets. Um, I think really the best one done so far was actually Invader Immortal to see what Mustafar was versus mm. what it became. But we even get snippets of it in like the myths and legends stuff for, for Tatooine. And now we can do it for Jack, um, for Jack, geez, for Jedi. Um, but we get allusions to it in Aftermath for Jack who, and, and it's just nothing really we, we need to talk about or expand on, but I will say here and now it is becoming one of my favorite tropes in Star Wars, and I hope we do get to see it a little bit more. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of fun to be able to um, go to these places that we've seen before and see a different time for them. And especially, I think a lot of people, when the High Republic started, they're like, 150 years, that's it? Like, that doesn't seem like long enough. And then you think about it in real-world context, and we live in a very different world than what it was 150 years ago. You know? I, th- I think you're the one who said that to me basically like yeah because i thought the same thing and you're like yeah but that was like the civil war <laughs> that's that's a pretty big gap right there yeah exactly and and you're talking about a galaxy that already has inner you know intergalactic travel like they're going to develop pretty quickly um and so i think that's important because the high republic is very much supposed to contrast the empire you know, and minor spoilers about Mandalorian, but like in the most recent episode of The Mandalorian, we kind of see how the New Republic builds off of the Empire in a way. Like it takes its resources and just kind of uh, starts from there and expects things to be different because their intentions are different when a lot of the things still seem the same. And here, you see this High Republic, which is, again, the golden age of the Jedi, the golden age of the Republic, is very different from what the Empire would later be. So when we see planets like Jedha so destroyed later in the Empire and not being able to build back up because the Empire takes, whereas here we see the Jedi and the Republic giving and uh, going out of their way to help planets that aren't even a part of their uh, confederacy, like, it really just makes it clear how bad the Empire was. And so when we see things like Lothal, Mandalore, uh, you know, Jakku, all of these places just completely decimated, it makes a lot more sense, but it makes it even more tragic. So let's go ahead and move on to part two, which is the fallout. Because at the end of part one, things go boom. Um, And Actually, I want to stop there first, because how did you feel (laughs) when that happened at the end of part one and we were like 72 hours away from the battle? I was thrilled, Um, which sounds weird, I know, but I was because I didn't think we would because of the setup, because of the length of this. I didn't think we would get to that kind of increased action and excitement that early on, but we did. And at the, I thought it was really well-timed because by this point in the story, I felt like I had a firm grasp finally of who was who, whose objective was what, and who certain parties were aligned to. 
a common mistake would have been to cement that ground and then keep going where it feels a little bit slower and things start to lose sight of the story and, and what's going on. I thought this was perfectly timed because had it happened 10 minutes earlier, I don't think I would have had that firm, concrete understanding, but I did. And if it happened 10 minutes later, I think I would have started to get a little bit bored. This was, to me, a great event. Um, it wasn't the most original, you know? <laughs> we, had the, yeah. we had the napkin bombing and Bloodline, which I think was the be-all, end-all of surprise bombings in Star Wars. Um, but overall, I thought the timing of it was perfect and gives more credit to the story than the actual event itself. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. It kind of, we were in this... I don't want to say lull, but things were very copacetic and we were just meeting all the different people, getting the landscape of everything. And then right the second you feel like you have it, like you said, it just literally blows up in your face. And you know, like, this is not going to go the way that you thought it was going to go. You're not going to spend the next, you know, 72 hours of time in the story just, you know, slowly having people get mad at each other. We're bombing and it's... Then you get another bombing, and another, I think there's three total in all of it, which is, I mean, obviously not a good thing for the characters, but I thought it was a great aspect of the storytelling because it shows the master manipulation of, or, or that the mother is able to orchestrate, which to me, I, I think it's, hard not to put her in the category not equal to a palpatine but when we're talking about having master plans like in star wars you think about palpatine and the way that she has all of these different plates spinning and she's able to maintain that balance is it's terrifying you know for a character that is supposed to be the leader of this nice calm religious order that's just there to help people and with each bombing, we get deeper and deeper into how dangerous she really is and the lengths in which she's willing to go to to get what she wants, which is the end of the Jedi. And, you know, it's, it's no secret because I think I was pretty vocal and clear and final about this in our review of Path of Deceit. But she is, to me, one of the best villains we've had, not just in canon, but even in Legends. I love her manipulation of things and people and how it's so firmly rooted in something you can kind of sort of agree with. How so? Just in terms of what the path really stands for in terms of, hey, can you control this? Can't you control mm. this? What's ethical? What do we really have the power to do and what's right to do? which I know we, we talked about so in depth in our Path of Deceit review, but it was just nice coming back to it. You know, I made the comparison to Phase 1 Marvel and the Avengers before, and, and I'll make it here again. It was just really nice having that story build separately and then be able to come back and revisit it so soon and not in a, a trilogy kind of format. Uh, it's, it's something High Republic is starting to do really well. And like I said, which I lost, we had so many little snippets of these stories that I like, oh man, this would be awesome to see. I hope we explore this more. And we just never do. Whereas now 
we're doing it, we're doing it quickly, we're doing it well, and not in a, here's a trilogy about, you know, no knock on Alphabet Squadron, I love it. But it's not in that trilogy format like Alphabet Squadron or like Padme. Yeah, it's in a more episodic format, which is really like every story, you know, you're going to get something out of it that adds to the other stories. And one of those things for me was the relationship between the mother and the herald because in path of deceit we kind of saw the herald starting to just trust the mother and question whether she was really what was best for the path and here you see her using that to slowly sow the seeds of dissension against him uh, to the point where she's able to turn him into a scapegoat for everything that happens there you know um, as we get when we jump to the end of the story they mention how people are blaming the path because of what the Herald did. And so now the mother has a villain, you know, and that's something when you're looking at a tragedy, when you're looking at um, how people manage and handle these tragic situations, it's always easier when there's a clear bad guy, when there's a clear villain unto whom you can place all your anger and frustration and resentment and everything and the mother creates that in the herald while also you know being able to cause all these other events around her to go on like it's it's just frankly it's pretty terrifying if you think about it like she has even though she's the one leading the path she created a scapegoat in the herald that now she can turn into a villain and make herself look even more like the savior. She's definitely setting up Marta to be the face of the path, which I think is going to uh, be something that she slowly tears away from her until Marta becomes uh, another herald, where she takes the fall for all the things that the mother is actually doing. So just the the slow release of the, her story, of the mother's story, is just insanely compelling like i'm terrified of her but i want to know everything about her at the same time well yeah that's why especially in this book the other big piece of this is even just seeing the physical step by step of what she's doing and how deceitful it is and how fun and exciting it is for us as an audience to watch but we know from phase one what she kind of has in the back of her her back pocket I guess I really trapped myself in my own sentence structure there um, but we're seeing what she has in her back pocket um, so just knowing the evil with of which she is able to unleash and having that dread where it's not just oh here's this cool character she's really Machiavellian and, and she's really cool but there's that bit of dread that goes along with it because it's like oh I know what she's going to do and it's going to be terrible yeah yeah and it's very much a long game. Like she is playing the long game. Um, and we know that obviously because we have phase one already. Uh, and so we know to some extent where this is all heading. We don't know how we're going to get there, but we know where it's all heading. And she is, is the fulcrum of that. And I found it really interesting that the villains of this story, because I, I the path are the antagonists, but they're not the villains yet, in my opinion. Um, at least not in at the beginning of this story. There's still an order where you're like, hmm, 
something is definitely off about them. I don't trust them, but they haven't really done anything wrong yet. Uh, And this story obviously kind of shows the audience that even though it takes a long time for the people to realize it. But I think that's why the Brotherhood of the Ninth Door was so interesting because they are, in a way, a metaphor for what's happening with the mother. Like, everybody sees something different. I loved that aspect that we get later of of how they cloud people's memory. And it's not just, I don't know what I saw. It's not just, I can't remember what I saw. Or that everybody saw something that, the same thing that wasn't there. Different people are all saying different things with the Brotherhood. And it causes confusion in that chaos. And that's something that the mother is doing throughout the uh, this phase, but also, or particularly rather, the Battle of Jeddah is she is getting you to look over at Tilson Grab, getting you to look over at the Brotherhood of the Ninth Door, getting you to look over at uh, the Jedi, getting you you know to see how we saved you guys from the Wargarins, and oh, the Herald is just a bad seed out of our uh, our group. Like, look at all of this work that the other people did to help protect this planet and we could have helped prevent this, but the Jedi overpowered us and we're the victims here. All of that I think is kind of encapsulated in the brotherhood of the ninth door and the way that they are um, able to deceive people and get people to see something that's not really there. Uh, and, and really they mention how they get them to see what they want to see, which is something that I think all of the people in here, except for uh, a select few of our Jedi, are seeing. Uh, they're all, you know, Irem, Erno are seeing what they want to see in each other. They want to fight. And so they're going to look for those reasons to do it. The Herald and the Mother are looking for faults within each other. Uh, Marta Rowe is looking for faults within the Jedi. So when you go looking for it, you're going to find it. But... Are you looking for the right thing? I think is the question here because even with the Brotherhood, yeah, they uh, use the dark side and and they're classic, you know, Star Wars villains. But are they really what we need to be focusing on? And the answer to that is no, because the real problem, as it always is in Star Wars, is much much deeper than that. Yeah, I love that point and bringing back to specifically, you know. Battle of Jedi and the way the story is told, to go on that hunt for clarity and information while still having that timer that we talked about was something so exciting because I myself kept getting more involved in the hunt in part two to go on and say, all right, well, what caused this? Who was it? Who was involved? Who saw something? I thought part two did a great job of that piece of it. But to still in the background have that countdown going to battle is coming, battle is coming, where it really sets that clock where it's like, I don't think they're going to find out who this was before the battle. So this is already something that's pretty exciting with this more exciting piece coming in. So part two, I thought was just a, a great exploration of finding that right information and everyone kind of looking in a different spot and concerned about something else while still building that tension. Yeah. There, George man does a great job of slowly releasing information to get you compelled to go continue to go forward in the story. Um, 
he does a great job of using like prior knowledge with uh you know suspicions and and he i think when he's writing he thinks not just about what the story is but what is the audience going to think the story is um which is a really meta thing to have to consider but i think it pays off really well here because again like the brothers of the ninth door we're gonna see them as oh this is easy this is the bad guy right but it's really just a diversion. And he kind of even sets that up in the way that he introduces them with the backfiring speeder. And, oh, my God, it's another bomb. Wait, no, it's not. It's just a backfiring speeder. We all freaked out about something that wasn't even that important, which is what happens. We freaked out about the Brotherhood of the yeah. Night Door. And right it's, it's one of my favorite things, too, when shows do that, especially where it, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But I know I've seen several shows do that where you're expecting, like, a car to explode. And someone kind of just goes in slowly and, and things don't explode. But just having that quick, tense moment of thinking something's going to happen that doesn't really happen is something that I don't think comes across well in books and novels. But this, this is the kind of medium where that plays along really well. So going in the earlier discussion of the story versus the way it's told, this was marrying the two perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that got brought in in part two, which I think is is important to talk about or at least mention, is the leveler. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. we get it understanding about what the mother's uh, idea of balance is in the way that she talks about the leveler and she talks about things being level and balanced and she views that very much in the same way of Palpatine it's if I'm in control things are balanced if I'm not in control things are not balanced which moves us to part three which is unbalanced and that's where we get another diversion oh here's the big problem no it's not in the Wargrins and the Wargrins attacking Mm -hmm. the streets and so when later on the leveler comes, people are easy, easily able to assume, oh, the beast they're talking about is the Wargarins. And it takes you know some of the Jedi to figure out that, no, this was something different because they could feel it through the Force. But for the people, it's able they have something easy to pin their anger onto. You know, here's this big beast. Well, yes, the path let them out. No, the path helped. Again, seeing what you want to see. They're showing you all of these flashy lights to get you to look everywhere except for uh, right where you need to, which is at the mother. It's it's it is a very compelling magic trick. You know, everything with her is sleight of hand, uh, getting you to look in a different direction, and even unexpected things like that. She's able to take advantage of by uh, you know getting Marta and everybody to help clean up that problem and promoting that. Look how look how much we helped promoting that idea of the path of the open hand as saviors, uh, which then makes the Herald even more of a villain for everybody to, to pin things onto. So in her pursuit of balance, she creates this unbalance among all the people where everybody's talking about the same event, but they're not talking about it with the same facts. In different ways, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And not even... Well, not only that, she's able to do it with the spotlight still kind of on her. You know, when you when you think about, like, Palpatine or even back in, like, Darth Bane, they're holding it moving in the shadows and, and making sure no one's onto you or even almost even knows you exist, whereas she's doing it literally while being interviewed by the Jedi. 
So yeah. that's why she's kind of climbing up in terms of the best villains that we've seen in, again, Legends or canon. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And that conversation with Salandra was so interesting to me because Salandra is quickly becoming one of my favorite Jedi. Like, I love Shocker. Brandon loves the idea of in, Jedi using in, a shield. Hold on, wait, we gotta, we gotta clarify this. In High Republic or in, like, in overall? In Star Wars, in Star Wars. Damn, boy. Uh, like, okay, how much time do I spend talking about Luke throwing away his lightsaber and not actually fighting you Kylo do. Ren? You do, okay? you do. No, it's consistent, it's consistent, you're right. I have <laughs> a brand, okay? I have a brand. Uh, and Salandra... <laughs> oh, hey, I see what you did there. But Salandra <laughs> is, is everything I think, you know, a Jedi should be. In there are times to fight. There absolutely are times to fight, but it should never be the first thing. And we should find a way when we do have to fight to fight in a way that hurts the people as little as possible. Because most fights, most wars and things like that are either the result of one dictator or one entity manipulating everybody else or just a misunderstanding among people who are looking for someone to blame for the things that have gone wrong in their lives. And Salandra is able to recognize that. And I think she's able to really start making these connections between everything that's going on. And somehow we always end up back at the path of the open hand. That's suspicious, you know, like when everything we talk about happening in this battle of Jedi story somehow goes back and has a connection to the path. It doesn't have a connection to the Church of the Force. Not everything has a connection to the Guardians of the Wills or the Jedi, but everything has a connection to the path of the open hand. And she's not willing to just sit back and accept, like, the narrative that the path is creating about how we're just here to help. She is going to find what the answer is, but she's not going to do it at the cost of everyone else. She's not going to just tear down the path when she doesn't have the real knowledge of what the bigger issue is that's going on. And I think that, to me, is what makes Jedi different than like just some galactic police force, is a galactic police force would just try to shut down what they see right in front of them, whereas the Jedi try to figure out what the bigger systemic issue is and the gaps that organizations like the Path of the Open Hand are being able to exploit. And we don't have an answer to that yet, but we know with her, and I think her and Creighton are going to uh, Dalnia in whatever the next book is. I'm assuming Cataclysm. Um, they'll go back to Dalnia. Uh, yeah, and I was I was going to say, too, and your thought of why you like Jedi Lost a little bit better, because it has more of that in-depth character exploration. That's something I do hope we continue to see with her, because I, I see where you're coming from, where she, I won't say she's my favorite Jedi in Star Wars Entity, but she has potential to one day be because my thing and my thought with her is she doesn't have the weight and gravitas of some of the other Jedi in the high Republic, not in a bad way, not in a bad way at all. In fact, in a very good way, she seems more like their version of, of 
a Quinlan Voss or even like a Qui-Gon Jinn who's a little bit lighter hearted and more approachable and has that fun human aspect where it's not just all Jedi all the time. Everything's so serious. I think what makes Salandra such a great Jedi is that lack of, of gravitas because that is humility. That's what Qui-Gon had. Uh, he was humble. He was able to admit when he was wrong. And that's something that if you look at a character like Obi-Wan, I wasn't a huge Obi-Wan fan before having the Kenobi series and Padawan. I always liked him, respected him, but I wouldn't have put him in my top five, maybe not even my top 10 Jedi that I relate to and want to be like. But when we get to see that more relatable and humble side of him, uh, the more real him to me, then he becomes a much more compelling character And then you have this middle area where he loses his way and he becomes so dogmatic and by the book and tries to be what people expect a Jedi to be, which is this, and we see this throughout the Battle of Jedi, this I'm better than you uh, superhero, you know, where... Our, our, the Jedi's nose looked da- look down their nose at us kind of thing. Uh, we have that with Obi-Wan in the prequels, and that's his, his huge mistake. And so I think having characters like Salandra Show that can be more grounded is really, really important in the future Jedi that we're going to get in the Qui-Gon Jinns and stuff. Like, there's a direct path to that where if these Jedi don't exist, then the Jedi Order is not going to be able to exist. And it's not going to be able to survive Order 66 and everything like that. Because if you you look at the the Jedi that survived Order 66 and were able to continue on the Order, characters like Cal, characters like uh, uh, Kanan, uh, and characters like Luke Skywalker, it was that humility and that willingness to accept that they don't have all the answers that made them the ones who could continue on the Jedi Order. And so I think a character like Salandra is is super important when you're looking at this time period when the Jedi are really starting to gain their uh, political powers in and respect within the Republic itself that will eventually, like we know, be their downfall. I think then it becomes really important that Salandra is the one that is there who is able to start investigating things because with how she is presented, we know that she can be trusted. Then you get the mother, again, manipulating more things in trying to get um, one of their people to be the mediator, which, of course, leads to Tilson Graff getting himself elected as the mediator, which we later learn that uh, is is part of this big grand plan that she has for the Battle of Jeddah. And... Then part three wraps up with a second explosion um, where Creighton has to save uh, Ambassador Xerox uh, from by force pushing her out of the way of a falling wall. And again, like you get this unexpected event happening that reinvigorates the story, you know, like right when it starts to seem like, okay, we're getting into a lot of like talking and now we're going to have a detective series going on and then boom it gets blown up and taken in a whole new direction bam so it's really really cool um how they put that together but Lindsay, we are an hour in and we are only through through part three of this story i think we're gonna 
stop here after the end of uh, of part two and continue on this conversation in a uh, later episode. So, Lindsay, if people want to uh, kind of get your thoughts on more of the High Republic happenings and uh, argue with you about uh, the first part of, of Battle of Jeddah, where can they do that? Yeah, honestly, find me on our um, Facebook page, Clashing Sabers Network, and definitely let me know what you think because Brandon and I would love to take some of your ideas and any points plot or thematically that we really missed um, and make sure we go into, since we are going to do a second part of this. Um, so please find me on that Facebook group, uh, tag me there and we're more than happy to discuss with you and discuss on the show, any points that you feel like we really overlooked in our part one here. Yeah. And uh, we can also be found over on Twitter, Instagram, all of those places at Clashing Sabers. Uh, or you can email us Clashing Sabers Network at gmail.com and share those thoughts. And we will discuss them on the part two because that's a rare opportunity that we get where we get to uh, visit a book or an audio drama through multiple parts. So we're going to take advantage of that and bring in your thoughts and conversations to our next discussion as well. So until then, keep reading, keep writing, but whatever you do, don't burn the sacred text. All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers Network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?